Welcome to episode 47 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. We had a fantastic event that just happened last night uh, at UFC 248. Main event was a bit of a snoozer between Israel Adesanya and Yoel Romero, but I'll recap that fight. Talk about a fight that absolutely was not a snoozer, the fight of the night, what would likely be fight of the year, although granted it's beginning of March, so there's plenty of time for it to get usurped. Uh, but still a tremendous fight between Zhang Wei Li and Yuani Yan Jacek. So I'll just talk about that fight as a whole, and then also some other storylines that came around that fight. Recap the entire UFC 248 card, preview UFC Brasilia, um, and then from there, uh, talk about the Tony versus Khabib press conference that was a little bit more exciting than I think some people expected. Um, recap the Big Ten Wrestling Championships, uh, talk about Edson Barboza calling for his release from the UFC, and then um, there were a bunch of fights that were announced over the course of the week, so I'll recap those as well. Uh, so starting at the top, we got Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero, and as Dana White said, part of the reason why this fight sucked so bad is because it came right after a great fight. Uh, but part of it was just that the fight wasn't all that good. Um, so in terms of how this fight went down and how I had scored it, first round, I think the final strikes were like 4-3 to three for Romero. Uh, Romero did land a pretty big overhand left, though, that uh, seemed to bother Israel Adesanya and land on his eye. Um, so I guess if you have to pick someone and it can't be a 10-10 round, you probably want to go with Romero on that one. Um, but Romero just kind of stood in place, kept his hands up the entire time, or for, for much of the first round. And Adesanya, much of his game is based around counter-striking. A lot of what he does offensively is throwing feints and trying to draw draw something out of you. And then while he draws a counter out of you, he'll counter your counter. And with Romero not throwing much at all, it was kind of tough for Israel Adesanya to find any home for anything. And plus, uh, Romero is not exactly the guy you want to just throw blind kicks at because the guy's made of steel and... You kick something and it lands on the knee or it lands on the elbow, and you can start off in the first round with your foot pretty much swollen up, and you're going to have to go for 20 minutes with your leg just absolutely battered. So for Adesanya, he didn't really want to throw too many kicks from range um, that weren't set up where he could potentially hurt himself depending on where they landed. Uh, but then getting in boxing range was also a little bit dangerous for him as well. Uh, so not a whole lot happened in that first round. Romero did land the one big overhand left, but it, it seemed like most of the damage from that was more so just the fact that it landed on the eye than that it was, like, stunning Israel Adesanya. So I go to the second round. This round, uh, Adesanya landed a few more shots than Romero. Uh, again, Romero was not doing a whole lot. There was one moment early in the round where uh, Romero landed a leg kick on Adesanya. It sort of tripped him up uh, and then ran him into the fence. was throwing a few shots from there. It was hard to tell if they were completely blocked or if uh, Adesanya was just sort of, like, moving his head with them. Um, but Adesanya was able to get off the fence anyway. Uh, so that probably the most memorable moment of the round, but it's not as though there was a whole lot of damage that was done in that specific moment. Uh, Adesanya did land more shots than Romero did. Uh, so I think for that reason, most of the judges gave, if not all the judges gave him that round. Uh, but for a lot of people who thought that Romero won this fight, uh, one, two, and five were the rounds that they pointed to. And round two is the one where I, I think that one exchange um, where Romero rushed uh, Adesanya up against the fence, depending on how you viewed that, uh, would depend on how you viewed the round as a whole. But I didn't see it as being terribly significant. So for that reason, I, I thought Adesanya had won that round. Uh, they go to the third round. Um, Arguably one of Adesanya's best rounds of the fight. Um, just out, outlining Romero for the majority of it. But again, he's still having to pick his spots. He, he was starting to get to a point where Romero was starting to extend as he was trying to counter Adesanya. And there were some moments where when Romero would come in, it would largely would be with the overhand left. So as long as Adesanya kept his right hand up, he'd be okay if he wasn't able to get his head out of range. Um, but there were some openings there for a counter left, and it seemed kind of odd that Adesanya wasn't going for it. Uh, but either way... Adesanya was definitely outlanding Romero in that round, so Adesanya, in my mind, had won that round. Would, would have been up 2-1 to one at that point. Uh, going into the third round, uh, fairly similar to the round before it. A little bit closer, I think, for Romero, but even still, I felt as though Adesanya outlanded him. Uh, I think Romero did land a takedown in that round, but again, 
the takedown was like a flash takedown. He had him down really quick, and Adesanya popped right back up. Uh, if you're going off of wrestling takedowns, he probably scores a takedown there. But if you're going off of jiu-jitsu where you have to hold the takedown for three seconds to score your two points, um, it wouldn't have been a takedown jiu-jitsu. Not that that matters for MMA, but just to kind of put some context on it. Um, so they get through that round, go into the fifth. Fifth round arguably was the best round for Romero, but again, there wasn't a whole lot that happened in it. Um, so fight ends from there. I had a 3-2 to two for Adesanya. I had, him, I had Adesanya 2-3-4. and four. Romero 1-5. Um, go to the judges. Uh, you had one judge who gave Adesanya four of the five rounds, which I think statistically sort of lined up. Um, and then the two other judges, I think, were 48-47. Um, so in the end, Israel Adesanya wins this fight here. Wasn't the most exciting fight. There were some storylines out, outside of where people were dogging on Adesanya and also dogging on, dogging on Romero. For Adesanya, it's a tough matchup because for him, especially when you watch the last fight with Paulo Acosta, the shots that Costa was landing that weren't putting Romero down, you, you have to think, like, if you're Israel Adesanya, like, maybe you can land a nice shot where you get Adesanya coming, or you get Romero coming in, so you can have the best of both worlds, what's the power of your strike plus the the force of him coming into it, where you can still potentially rock him, hurt him, or even drop him, maybe even finish him. So it's not as though it was unrealistic for Adesanya to think that he could knock out Yolo Romero. Uh, but with that being said, if you're getting into exchanges or each of you were landing a couple of shots, you'd have to figure that Romero's going to be doing better in those exchanges than Israel Adesanya. So for Adesanya, he, he had to take this fight and, and, and just sort of pick Romero apart. Romero's passivity made it difficult for Adesanya to, to find more openings, uh, the openings he probably expected to find. Uh, so for that reason, his volume was definitely down. But with that being said, given how Adesanya fights, I'm not really all that upset with him and how, how this fight went. I don't know. Like, like outside of the, the counter left that I saw some openings for when I, when um, he would get Romero to rush in, I didn't really see a whole lot of other openings that Adesanya should have been able to jump on or should have jumped on. So it's tough for me to be angry at him and feel as though he, he did something wrong here. Um, there are people saying he fought like a bitch. I don't agree with that at all. He, he fought perfectly fine. He was taking the center for, for the most part. Um, so I'm not too upset with Adesanya. For Romero, again, that's sort of how he fights. He's fighting against an incredibly high-level kickboxer. So for him, you, you don't want to be super reckless. Uh, with that being said, though, he he's still a guy who's known for exploding and doing enough to steal rounds, and there were rounds in there where he, he didn't even really make much of an effort to explode and steal a round. And when you're not doing enough to try to take rounds, um, you can't be upset when you don't get enough rounds at the end of the fight when the judges tally up the scorecard. So for Romero, this could have been his last title fight. You would have liked to have seen more out of him. I understand that he doesn't likely have the pay or doesn't likely have the energy to go 25 hard minutes. Uh, but with that being said, e even if you are managing your energy, you, you still want to manage it to the point where you're using up most, if not all of it, by the end of 25 minutes. And I don't feel like that was the case for Romero. I think he had a lot more energy left um, that he could have used at um, more st more strategic times. Uh, and then for him to go on the mic and then like get angry at Israel Adesanya and try to make it sound as though Adesanya was the reason for the fight being boring, that's you really can't do that if you're going to come out of the come out to the fight stand still like a statue for the first minute and like make your biggest motion just shuffling in place. So. I don't agree with Romero in that Adesanya is to blame for this. Um, was it an exciting fight? No, but I don't blame Adesanya for fighting the way he fought. Romero, to an extent, I can understand what he was doing, but he, he had to step on the gas a few more times than he did there, and by him not doing it, the, the fight went about as you'd expect. As far as the the argument that was being made by the commentators that he should have wrestled more, I, I don't know how much I buy into that. Again, to, to wrestle, you have to be able to close the distance enough to be able to get a hold of your opponent and then be able to take him down. Um, from there, there were a couple times where he did try to explode into him and try to take him down, and there were some times where he got stuffed or Adesanya had some really nice brawls on him. Uh, so it's not as though any time that Romero wanted to take Adesanya down, he could have done so at will. 
wasn't all that easy. Plus, the one time that he actually did pop him down, um, Adesanya was able to pop back up right away. Uh, so the idea that Romero could have like taken him down and held him down at will, I don't know that I buy that, especially given uh, the fewer takedown attempts that we saw. Um, plus, with that being said, Adesanya has shown improving takedown defense over time. His, his ability to sprawl in open space was really nice in this fight. And, I mean, the guy, he'll look for submissions too. So if you overextend yourself, I mean, don't be surprised if Adesanya sneaks in a guillotine choke. Um, so for Romero, could he have wrestled more? Maybe, but it's not as though him just deciding to go for more takedowns would have automatically made things better for him. He, he still has to be able to get Adesanya down. He still has to be able to take him down. He has to be careful that if he overextends himself trying to get a takedown, that he doesn't get caught in something. So I, I didn't really feel as though Adesanya was like wasting a giant skill in wrestling that he could have used to win the fight. Uh, it, it's not that easy to take Adesanya down. It's not that easy to control him. Uh, Romero, as I've mentioned many times before, isn't necessarily known for his control on top. He's more of a freestyle wrestler. Well, he is a freestyle wrestler, not a folk style wrestler. Um, so for him not to be able to hold down Adesanya after taking him down the one time he got him, not the most shocking thing in the world. Uh, and then for Adesanya to be able to sprawl um, on some of those shots that came from a distance without a setup. Um, granted, if there was a better setup and he sprawled out of it, that would have been a little more impressive. But even still, it was impressive for him to sprawl the way that he did because those, those were some explosive shots. Uh, so then we move on to the co-main event. We have Zhang Weili versus Yuan Yan Jacek. Um, in the fight, in the main event, total strikes were under 100 between the two of them. Actually, under 90 even. Um, this one, <laughs> much higher numbers. I don't, I don't have the final counts on those. I don't know uh, where the official counts are, but they just absolutely went after each other. It's a fantastic fight. As far as how to score it, I. Some of the rounds were so close, and I think there were some people who were putting up some numbers on Twitter saying that like three of the rounds they had identical strikes landed. Um, from there, if you're listening to the commentators, it sounded as though any time that Zhang Weili landed something, they were making a much bigger deal out of it than when whenever Yuana landed. Obviously, Zhang is known for having more power than Yuana is, uh, so I can understand seeing it that way. But with that being said, um, if you're judging, you really can't put reputations at, at the top of mind. You kind of have to just look at what's happening in front of you and judge based off of that. I don't remember what rounds I had, but I, I thought Ioana might have had a 3-2. to two, But again, this is one of those fights that was so close that even if I was judging it, I don't even know that, that I could have given it an accurate score. But I wasn't watching it as a judge, so <laughs> as inaccurate as I could have been had I been watching it that way, I definitely was not watching it that way. So for it to go to Zhang Weili, I don't feel like Zhang, I don't feel like Ioana got robbed necessarily, but it was definitely a close fight. Um, but both of them were doing a good job of landing. Um, Zhang, for the most part, was using primarily just two strikes. It was that straight right hand and then the lead left hook. Um, it's kind of surprising that she was able to land so much with those two main strikes. It's not as though she was, like, mixing it up a whole ton on each side. It was pretty much if you were going towards the left, that the left hook was coming. If you're going, or if you're going towards, um, Zhang's left, the left hook was coming. If you're going towards the right, she'd be trying to straight right. Yuan was doing a pretty good job of sliding out of the way that straight right. There were a lot of times where she was able to get, get out of the way and land her own counter shots. Uh, was doing a great job of the leg kicks as well. Um, but I guess one of the big turning points in the fight was in the third round when uh, Yuan had a kick get caught, and then as Zhang was throwing a right hand um, to counter, it glanced off of Yuan's forehead and created a hematoma that just started bubbling up and going from there. Uh, so Yuan fought another two rounds with that and fought valiantly, but her head was just <laughs> constantly expanding, just looked looked absurd by the end of the fight. Uh, but Yuan was still fighting well, still landing pretty well. Her, her, her kicks were definitely a lot more effective than Zhang's were. I uh, was definitely landing the body more effectively than Zhang was. Uh, Zhang was definitely headhunting, landed some pretty hard strikes. Uh, some that seemed to stun Yuana, but it, it's just one of these tough fights where it's kind of hard to hard to say who should have won or or wh where the judges should have gone with it. But I, either way, it's a really exciting fight. Obviously, they're both going to need a while to recover from that. Hopefully, they're given a while to recover from it. 
Um, with Tatiana Suarez being the number one contender, but her having some neck issues, I don't know what the plan is at the weight class right now. I know they have Rose Namajunas fighting against Jessica Andrade. Um, if Rose wins, maybe it makes sense to do Rose versus Zhang. But I, I think at this point, you just kind of have to see how long it's going to take for each of these girls to heal. Um, and then sort of lay out a timeline before you decide what's next. Um, but if they do the rematch right away, I'm perfectly fine with that. Hopefully they don't go too fast with it. Hopefully they give them enough time to heal up. Um, but if not, um, the Zhang versus... Or not Zhang. Um, you want to... Nope. It's Rose Namajunas <laughs> versus uh, Jessica Andrade. If Andrade wins that fight, I don't know that you're going to put Andrade in a title fight right away. But if Rose Namajunas wins that fight... I could definitely see her having a case for a title shot against Zhang. It's a fresh matchup. Uh, you, you could definitely make some arguments for why Rose would win that fight. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see. Um, I, I think just saying the day after a, a fight like that, what's next, is, is pretty tough, especially given the amount of time that's probably going to be needed for each of them to recover. Uh, not just from the physical, like, bone injuries or tendon injuries, but also you, you would figure there's probably going to be some, some, some time that needs to be given um, for their brains as well. Also, for Joanna, I'm not sure what exactly happened there, but at the end of the fifth round, she went for a spinning back fist and sort of, like, shook out her hand after landing that. I don't know if she just sort of hurt her forearm there or if there was, like, any damage beyond that, but that could also be something that could lead into there being some extra time for Joanna where she needs to take some more time before she comes back. But we'll have to wait and see and see where they go from there. They, they did get released, released from the hospital, but they're not going to keep you in the hospital overnight for, like, a broken forearm or for something like that. So we'll, we'll see where they go. Um, great fight either way, but... As far as some other storylines that came out of it, one of the ones that was circling around on Twitter was Islam Makachev putting out a tweet saying that this is not a woman's sport. First off, it's crazy. So first off, obviously, this was a fantastic fight. I think most people watching are like, this is great. We're happy this this happened. I got to say, though, like, <laughs> as much as I disagree with Islam Makachev, I kind of respect that he would make his point after that. Like, most people, when they, make, when they like, have arguments that they, that they really want to stick to, they wait until like, the best possible time for them to make their argument. So, like, the time when the case seems to, like, make the most sense for what they're saying rather than the worst possible time. Like, there are some people, I guess Luke Thomas is one example, where he is always talking about how awful USADA is. Like, Luke Thomas will love to jump in after a Sean O'Malley fight and talk about, well, look at how bad this guy got screwed, but you're not going to hear Luke Thomas pop up after, like, some ju some obvious juice monkey, juice monkey gets popped for steroids. Effectively, what Islam Makachev did here would be like Luke Thomas, like complaining about USADA after like a juice monkey gets popped for steroids. Like, people are happy with USADA when, when someone who's obviously taking steroids gets caught and gets suspended. Um, people would be very supportive of women's MMA after watching a fight like Zhang versus Yuana. For so for, for Islam to to make his point and do so at probably like the worst possible time. I I guess like in a weird way, I kind of respect that he would do that. Now, do I agree with him at all? No, absolutely not. Uh, this was a fantastic fight. We're, we're we're definitely happy as fans that this fight was allowed to happen. That they weren't like, nope, they were they were born with two X chromosomes. They can't they can't fight. Like, thankfully that's not the case. Thankfully they were allowed to fight. Thankfully they were allowed to pursue the careers that they did and put the time and effort that, into growing their skills as they did and put on a fight like that. Um, as fans, we're all definitely better for for watching it. But for Islam, obviously in America that's not going to be a popular take. I don't know what the culture is like in Russia um, as far as how they feel about that, but weird form of respect for him for at least if you're going to make your argument you got to be able to make it when it looks when it looks really good and also when it looks really bad and his argument looked really bad right there and he still made it so i guess <laughs> weird, weird weird form of respect to him for that but definitely don't agree with him uh and then also another weird thing that sort of happened there was when Zhang was in the cage after she had won uh 
a um, presidential candidate for from the U.S. Tulsi Gabbard was in her corner there, um, uh, celebrating as she won, which I thought was kind of odd. But I, I know that her and Tulsi have a, a little bit of a relationship outside of the cage. I know Tulsi posted a video of her uh, doing some pad work with Zhang Wei Li. I think she also played a role in helping her get her visa and make help her get into the U.S. Uh, so there's a relationship there, but it's kind of odd for her to be in the middle of a, a presidential campaign and be in the be, in, be at a UFC fight and be in a corner there. I guess technically she was in the corner. It's not like she was giving her instructions throughout the fight, but at least like being in the support group after the fight in the octagon. Um, but Tulsi, even though she is technically an active candidate, um, isn't really putting up great numbers, and it looks very unlikely that she's going to be the um, the person to run for the Democrats. But even still. Uh, sort of odd, didn't really expect her to be there, so to kind of see her pop up out of nowhere, I was like, well, what the hell's going on here? Uh, as for the rest of the card, the fight before that, which everyone was so sure was going to be fight of the night, <laughs> and boy, that did not last very long, was Benil Darius versus Jakar Close, so Darius in the first round was able to get Close's back up against the fence, uh, was working a sink in a rear naked choke, wasn't able to, uh, sort of tired out his legs, uh, second round comes around, um, Jakar Close lands some heavy shots on Benil Darius, Darius looks like he's about to get finished. Um, and then as Darius is getting backed up, he lands a big shot on close, um, starts running him down um, before landing a huge, I believe it was an overhand left, um, that sort of like knocked Close's mouthpiece out, put him out unconscious as he uh, sort of laid there against the fence. And then there was a fantastic re reaction video slash gif that was made of Jorogan, Dan Cormier, and John Anik uh, that came at the end of that. So b big win for Benil Darius. I don't know that's going to put him in the rankings, but it, it was still a nice win for him either way. Uh, we had Neil Magny versus Lee Jingling. Uh, Lee was likely to be ranked in the top 15 had he got a, gotten a win here. Neil Magny hasn't fought in like a year and a half, uh, though he had been a, a staple in the top 15 before that. Uh, but Magny looked pretty good here, uh, was able to beat Lee in most areas of the fight, uh, was able to outgrapple him for the most part, was able to take him down. Uh, not as though he was able to like get close to submitting him at any point, but he was still able to control position pretty well. Uh, did fairly well on his feet and then called out Michael Chiesa afterwards, uh, which would definitely be an interesting fight. I think Chiesa is interested in it as well. In the first fight on the main card, we had a split decision war between Alex Oliveira and Max Griffin. Uh, Oliveira started off really strong, uh, was doing pretty good even in the last round before getting reversed by Griffin. Um, and then Griffin from top was likely able to do enough to steal that round, but not enough to win the, to steal the fight. On the prelims, we had Sean O'Malley versus Jose Quinones. Uh, O'Malley came back looking really good, landed a nice counter right hook as Quinones was coming in, uh, and then was able to put him at, um, put him away soon after. Uh, I think the final blow was a, a big uppercut as Quinones was ducking. Um, we had Mark Madsen, who looked fantastic in the first couple rounds, but was having some trouble in the third round. Uh, was just kind of tossing Hubbard around. Uh, wasn't super close to finishing him, but it was definitely um, dominating those first two rounds. But then Hubbard uh, came on strong, landed some nice knees. It looked as though he had Madsen hurt it a couple different times, but Madsen was able to hang on and get the 29-28 win and move to 10-0. Uh, Hadolfo Vieira versus Safarbek Safarov. Um, Safarov, I think it was a kick that he landed, but he, he messed up Vieira's eye pretty badly. Uh, but Vieira was able to shoot in, uh, get a takedown, Safarov hopped back up, shot back in again, got another takedown, uh, was able to take his back up against the fence. And one of the things that we see a lot with fighters in MMA is that when they get up against the fence, they oftentimes will expose their back, and they feel like with most opponents that they're going to be able to get up more often than not rather than actually giving up their back and getting caught in a worse position. But when you're going up against a five-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion like Adolfo Vieira, uh, that tactic may not as good of as good of an idea. Uh, so he gets his back taken eventually. Uh, Though he had his back taken, was able to eventually get underneath mount, which isn't really much of a better position, especially in MMA, especially with as big as Vieira is. Uh, and then from there, Vieira was able to scoop his elbow up, uh, get him in an arm triangle, and get the finish there. Uh, and it looked as though right after that, had Vieira not been able to get the finish there, and they had to go to another round, the doctor might have stopped it. So luckily for Adolfo Vieira, he's able to get the finish there. 
rather than being stopped by Dr. Stoppage. A uh, bit of a dirty fight from Safarov, but that's kind of what he's become known for. Uh, was grabbing inside of Vieira's gloves, was grabbing the fence multiple times. You were kind of hoping that the ref would at some point say, you know, we're going to have to start taking points away, but that didn't get there. I guess with that being said, that was actually a point that I completely meant, I, I absolutely meant to talk about with the main event that I forgot about, so I guess I can come back to it now. Uh, but with the Adesanya versus Romero fight, in the third, either at the end of the third or beginning of the fourth, um, Dan Margliata started talking to the fighters and telling them that they have to fight more, they have to be more aggressive. And there was some criticism around that. I actually completely agree with Mergliata on that. One of the things I talked about in uh, our previous podcast about open scoring is that one of the things that's going to need to be in place for open scoring to work properly is that the refs are actually going to have to call passivity when passivity is there. It, it is in the rule book that refs are allowed to call for passivity. They are allowed to take points away. Um, so it was nice to see that the ref was warning, was making a passivity warning there. That's definitely within the rules. He's definitely allowed to do it. The wording on it, I think some people might not have liked that he was talking about, oh, it's a championship fight. Come on, like get after it. Um, maybe they felt like the wording was a little bit douchey, but effectively what he was doing was giving a verbal warning for passivity to both of them. And that's something that he's definitely allowed to do. Uh, it's not as though he had to like say, I am verbally warning you for passivity. Like If he wants to use his own language, I think both Romero and Adesanya understood what was going on there. So I had no issue at all with what Mergulata was doing there. Um, it's not as though it helped a whole lot, but it, it seems as though he wasn't, he didn't want to have to start taking away passivity points if he has to take them from both the, take away a passivity point for both of them or take away a point from each of them. Effectively, it's meaningless if you have to take it from one of them. That's sort of tough too because both of them are pretty passive. So I can understand why he kept he kept saying what he was saying. He was hoping that he didn't have to call passivity, um, and he kind of understood that if he called them both, then it really wouldn't have accomplished a whole lot, especially since there's no yellow card system in place. Um, but, but I get what he was doing, and I'm not too upset about it. Uh, so back to Gerald Mearshart and Duran Wynn. This was a fight I talked about in last week's podcast. I said I couldn't believe that Mearshart was an underdog there and that you should put your money on it. Uh, stupid me, though. I kind of let the work we kind of get in my head, and I just wasn't paying too much attention to MMA throughout the week. Uh, so as a result, I forgot to put my bet in, and then, of course, Gerald Mearshart got, got the win there. Um, but Duran Wynn had some good moments where he, when he was able to close the distance, he, he, he was landing some pretty um, quick and powerful overhand lefts. Um, definitely had Mearshart hurt at a couple different points, but... It looked as though heading into the third round that the, that the fight was tied. Uh, Mearshart was able to, to land some good shots on the feet that had win and hurt. Uh, win sort of like started to run away. Got caught in a position where he he could have wrestled through it and you would have expected him to. Uh, but he really didn't. Just kind of let Mearshart take his back. And then from there, just kind of had his hands at his hips waiting for Mearshart to lock in something that looked like a choke before he could tap. It, it was sort of one of those things where you hear about it all the time where there were submissions where on the books it's officially a rear naked choke, but in reality it's more so just like a a submission due to strikes where the fighters just kind of like giving up their neck and like, hey, just take it, like, get, get me out of here, make it look like rather than me getting beat cleanly, it was just like, oh, you just outplayed me on the ground. This was like a, a textbook example of it where Duran Wynn effectively had given up after he was hurt uh, and was just trying to get finished on the ground where he wasn't going to have to take any more shots. Uh, so he was just kind of there, sort of had his chin tucked, wasn't fighting the hands at all. Uh, you could hear Daniel Cormier sort of like, he's got to fight the hands here, he's got to fight the hands here, which was him being nice. In reality, he, w what he was watching, what we were all watching, was Duran Wynn giving up, waiting for Gerald Mearshart to, to sink into a naked choke, which he did. Uh, and then Mearshart was able to get the win right there. And then on the early prelims, we had Giga Chikadze getting a split position win over Jamal Emmers, 29-28 uh, on two judges' scorecards for Chikadze, 28-29, uh, or 29-28 for Jamal Emmers on the other. And then... Uh, Donna Badgerell with a knockout of Guido Canetti in the first fight on the card, uh, dropping Canetti to 8-6 and, and likely taking him out of the UFC. 
Uh, so next thing to talk about is going to be UFC Brasilia, uh, which is going to be the card coming up next week. I'm going to go bottom to top rather than top to bottom. Uh, but this card is surprisingly good uh, looking at it. Um, first fight on the card, maybe not the strongest, but you got Veronica Macedo versus B.M. Malecki. Uh, we got Bruno Silva versus David Dvorak, uh, who I believe is from the Czech Republic, 17-3, and so decent record coming in. Uh, we got Myra Bueno Silva versus Marina Moroz. Uh, and then the fight starts to get a little bit better from there, so we got Hani Yaya versus Enrique Barzola. Uh, so Yaya has definitely had some good wins at Bantamweight. Barzola, pretty solid all-around fighter. Uh, we got Elizu Zaleski Dos Santos, uh, former top 15 welterweight versus Alexi Konchenko, who had been 20-0 prior to his loss to Gilbert Burns. Uh, so he's now 20-1, so that's, that should be a really strong fight. Uh, we got Amanda Rebus versus Brandon Marcos. I believe this was supposed to be Amanda Rebus versus Paige Van Zandt, but Van Zandt got injured. Uh, but Rebus is coming off of a win over Mackenzie Dern. Uh, Brandon Marcos is sort of like a staple towards the top of that division, though. Um, we got Juice Formiga versus Brandon Moreno. In theory, this could be a fight that I, I don't think it's going to end up being a title eliminator. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Dana White wants to run back the Benavides versus Figueredo fight for the title. Um, but Formiga versus Moreno, the winner of this fight, has to be in that conversation where, depending on how quickly they do the Figueredo versus Benavides fight, if they decide to run it back, like in June, July, the winner here, in theory, might be able to just kind of hang out um, after winning this fight and be next in line. Um, that, that's how close they are to the top of the division. Uh, we've got... On the main card, Francisco Trinaldo versus John McDessie. This is a fight that probably had been really good like four years ago. Um, Trinaldo at one point was ranked in the top 15 at lightweight, although he hasn't been quite as hot lately. Uh, McDessie has had some good moments and not-so-good moments. Um, then we have uh, Johnny Walker versus Nikita Krylov, which should be an excellent fight. I didn't realize that Johnny Walker was coming back so soon, but he will be fighting Nikita Krylov. Uh, so a couple guys who've been hanging around in the top 15 at light heavyweight. Um, both guys who are pretty pretty decent strikers. Uh, so we'll, we'll get that fight there, and it'll be interesting to see how, how Walker rebounds off of that loss to Corey Anderson. Uh, we got Hinata Moikano versus Demir Hadzevic. Moikano, a guy who'd been sitting around the top five of the featherweight division, uh, versus Hadzevic, who's a, a pretty solid fighter. Um, we've got Damian Meyer versus Gilbert Burns, <laughs> which part of me is worried that it's just going to be a, a striking match for, for three rounds, and that Gilbert Burns is probably going get to the, get the edge on Meyer there. But if Maya is able to take Gilbert Burns down, you got to battle two Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champions. Maya is a little bit more accomplished than Gilbert Burns is, but Burns is still t- still fantastic. Um, if Maya is able to get him down, I'd imagine he's able to do enough to steal the rounds. I don't know that I see him like passing Burns' guard and finishing him. It's possible. He's definitely good enough to do it. He does it to other top-level black belts. It's not like he can't do it to Gilbert Burns. Um, but that would definitely be interesting to fight, fight to watch. I don't see Gilbert Burns being able to take Maya. Or, I guess he could take him down, but I don't see him being very effective from top if he is able to do so. Uh, it seems to me that the game plans here would be Gilbert Burns is going to try to win this fight on the feet, and Maya is going to try to win on the ground. And then in the main event, we got Kevin Lee versus Charles Oliveira. Oliveira has looked fantastic lately. His striking has improved a lot since he began in the UFC. His jiu-jitsu has improved quite a bit as well. Um, not that it's ever been an issue for him, but it, it's definitely gotten much better. Uh, so for Kevin Lee, you're looking at it and trying to think, well, how is he going to handle this fight? Is he going to try to just pick Charles Oliveira apart on the feet and just kind of land some jabs, sort of like play the GSP style? Uh, be careful about when he goes to the ground. Um, for him, if he does get forced in a position where he's hurt on the feet, he's going to be in big trouble against Oliveira. For him, for, for Kevin Lee, if he's going to win this fight, I, I can't imagine the wrestling is going to play a big role for him. Um, I, I think Oliveira is going to be comfortable enough to just try to strike with him. Uh, so Lee's going to have to be able to outstrike him. Do I think he can? I, I mean, Lee's a powerful guy. We saw what he did to Gregor Gillespie. It's definitely possible that he could land a, a similar shot on Charles Oliveira. It's not like Oliveira hasn't been finished before, but this seems like a very difficult matchup for Kevin Lee, so I would pick Oliveira, but it, it's tough because it seems like with Charles Oliveira, he looks fantastic against some guys who aren't ranked, 
Uh, looks like a guy who should be towards the top of the division, but then once he finally gets his shots against the, the top-ranked guys, he, he seems to struggle there. Is this going to be any different for him? I, I mean, this is the best I've ever seen him look, so in, in theory it definitely can be it definitely can be different for him, but he's going to have to get over a mental hurdle, hurdle that goes beyond just his skill, his skill level, and he's got a very skillful opponent going, that he's going up against, and a really big guy in Kevin Lee. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there, but this is definitely a fight I can't wait to see. Next thing to talk about is the Khabib and Tony press conference. Uh, so going in, I just kind of figured that Tony would be weird old Tony and Khabib would just kind of be stoic old Khabib. Um, we, we definitely got the weird Tony where he was showing up with like some weird gloves on, uh, had a baseball and was like making some weird analogy where he was just like trying to like talk about bad things that Khabib had done in the past and like, oh, well, this is a strike, this is a strike, this is a strike, three strikes and you're out, which again is sort of weird. Like one of the things he was holding against Khabib was that he had a video that was posted of him wrestling with a California high school state wrestling champion. Um, at the time that the video was taken, the, the guy hadn't yet gone to state, so or he hadn't yet wrestled in the state finals. He was a week away from that. Uh, and he was a senior, so it would have been his chance to win his first state title. So he was wrestling with Khabib, and Khabib um, just tooled him. And so I guess the point that um, Ferguson was making was that he was like, messing with his ego and possibly hurting him before a really big tournament, a really big moment in his life. But obviously it worked out well for, for the guy I'm talking about, Chase Eldate. He ended up winning uh, winning state in California, won by pin as well in the finals. Uh, so it's not as though there was any harm or foul there. He was talking about the, the old thing where there was like a video of Khabib paying a homeless guy to do push-ups, which some people feel was demeaning because you're not supposed to like make them do push-ups, but also you're you're offering them to work for money and if they're accepting it and then you're paying them i mean is, is that all that bad so sort of depending on your perspective whether that's a really demeaning thing or whether that was perfectly fine that, that's up to you but that was something that tony ferguson was talking about so he was just sort of picking at khabib that way then uh started talking about how he's a better street fighter than khabib which really set khabib off which i thought was kind of odd of all things khabib was talking about how tony was born in america and so Tony's not actually a Mexican, he's a fake Mexican, which is also uh, sort of a weird but funny thing. Cause it, it, it was funny how Khabib was getting really upset at Tony for talking about street fights, and then Tony was getting really upset about at Khabib for Khabib talking about how he's not a real Mexican because he wasn't born in Mexico and that he doesn't live in Mexico. He's saying he's from California and that he was like living in Michigan. Um, and then from there, they, they went to the stare-downs. Uh, Tony put his interim title on the ground, which I thought was kind of a weird move. And then Khabib, who I thought would stomp on it, uh, just decided to kick it away instead. Uh, so that, that definitely made for a tense moment. So it, it's a fight that, just as hardcore fans, we really wanted to see to begin with. So it's not as though we needed this to, to get more hype for it. But for the casual fans who maybe don't know as much about these two and the history they've had, um, there are definitely some moments there that I'm sure can draw some attention to it and make it a, make it a bigger fight, which is ideally what they were looking for in a press conference. So... As a hardcore fan, did it do a whole lot for me? I mean, it was entertaining, but for the casual fans, I think it's definitely going to provide some moments that's going to draw their interest in. I think a lot of people are interested in Khabib anyway because of what he did, what he did to Connor. Um, but adding some more um, context to this fight and adding some new storylines to this fight is definitely going to help. So, I think all things went well there. Uh, next thing to talk about is going to be Big Ten wrestling. Uh, so we had the Big Ten championships. I'll just go through the results at every weight class. Uh, so starting at 125, Spencer Lee from Iowa just absolutely ran through the entire field as he was expected to do. Um, closest match that he had um, was the finals, which was a 16-2 win over Devin Schroeder. At 133, uh, this was definitely the most exciting bracket on paper. Uh, there were four guys who uh, I think everyone figured had a shot at it. You had Seth Gross, Sebastian Rivera, Roman Bravo Young, and Austin DeSanto. Uh, all four of them got through to the semifinals. 
uh, with Rivera winning seven to six over Seth Gross in the semis after a very close loss at, at Midlands earlier, earlier this year to Seth Gross. And then um, Roman Braviang caught a quick double leg on Austin DeSanto. It was sort of stalling for much of the rest of the match, but was able to avoid any stall calls and was able to win by a score of three to two over DeSanto. And in the finals, Sebastian Rivera was able to beat Roman Bravo Young uh, by a score of seven to two. Give the first takedown, but came on pretty strong after that. Uh, Seth Gross and Austin DeSanto had their third match of the year in the consolations. Uh, Gross came out pretty strong at the start. Um, DeSanto's coming hard at the end, trying to trying to catch up, but wasn't able to do enough. And so Seth Gross was able to win there. So he would figure for national seedings. Though Rivera was the lowest seeded in this bracket at the Big Tens, um, by him winning it, with especially with as strong as the, the bracket was, you'd figure that he's probably going to be number one uh, heading into nationals. You'd probably think Seth Gross, who was the number one seed in this tournament, is probably going to be number two, even though he finished third, because uh, he does hold a win over the guy who finished second in Roman, in Roman Bravo Young. Uh, from there, there's uh, Chaz Tucker, or Charles Tucker from Cornell. Doesn't really have any great wins this year, but he has been undefeated, so maybe he probably gets a three. Uh, and then from there, where you go from there, it, it's sort of tough to tell. Probably Roman Braviang at number four, um, maybe DeSanto at number five, uh, but but pretty pretty tough to say. At 141, uh, we got the rematch between Nick Lee and Luke Pletcher in the finals. Uh, Lee won the first match. I think it was eight to four. Uh, this time, Pletcher was able to get a late takedown uh, to go up six to four. Uh, Lee got an escape, but then Pletcher was able to hang on there at the end and win by a score of six to five. At 149. We got a rematch between Pat Lugo and Sammy Sasso. Sasso barely got through after um, a really close match with Yaya Thomas in the quarterfinals. Um, but Lugo get, finally was able to take down Sasso, finally finally able to finish a takedown against him. Um, and that was enough for him. Got ridden out the entire second period. Um, but was able to, to, to do just enough to hang on here. Almost got taken down at the end. Um, there was sort of like a neutral danger rule where if your back is exposed to the mat for more than three seconds, uh, they'll, they'll give a takedown even if the guy doesn't have total control of you. Uh, it was about a two count before time ran out, so Lugo got pretty lucky there, uh, but did enough just to hang on and get the win there at 149. At 157, uh, Ryan Deacon was the number one seed. The number two seed, Caleb Young of Iowa, had a terrible tournament, uh, didn't place, and he should get a wild card, but for Iowa, they were probably hoping that he'd have like a top five seed headed into nationals. It's definitely not going to be the case anymore. Uh, so hopefully for him, he, he gets a favorable bracket where he doesn't have too many difficult matches, uh, and whatever his issue was here where he wasn't able to score too many takedowns, um, hopefully that gets resolved, and he's, he's looking a whole lot better. But this was a really bad tournament for him. Um, definitely worrisome for Iowa, but Ryan Deacon did end up winning this entire bracket as expected. At 165, um, we had the battle between the number one and number two guy in the nation in the finals between Vincenzo Joseph and Alex Marinelli. Uh, sort of a weird thing that happened here is that Evan Wick, who was the number three seed in this bracket from Wisconsin, had to medical forfeit. Um, but between that match and with that match with Joseph and Marinelli, there were a couple uh, tense moments there prior to like the final 30 seconds. Uh, but eventually Marinelli is able to get on a single leg switch to a double, get a quick takedown of Vincenzo. Uh, Joseph gets back up, uh, but then Marinelli is able to avoid getting taken down and wins by a score of 3-2. So he is now going to be the new number one in the nation. Uh, but at 174, you had another Penn State-Iowa one versus two match. Uh, but this time the results were kind of flipped. So this time Michael Kemmerer ended up losing to Mark Hall. Uh, there was a moment where it was sort of like that neutral danger thing I was talking about before. Um, but not only was Kemmerer, did he give up the two points, but he also gave up two points for a near fall from there as well. Uh, so it was a four-point um, maneuver there for, for Mark Hall. Uh, Kemmerer looked solid towards the end of the match, was able to get a late takedown, but in the end, Mark Hall ends up winning by a score of 8-5. to five. Uh, So these guys um, will likely flip seeds. Uh, Kemmerer's probably going to be the number two at Nationals, and then if Kemmerer is able to wrestle to a seed and get to the finals, we'll probably get the rubber match there, and that should be pretty exciting. At 184... 
Aaron Brooks of Penn State was the number one seed heading into this bracket. Um, his only loss of the year came to Taylor Venz. He had a chance to face him again in the semifinals. Venz looked decent at times, but Brooks was able to 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 look much better as the match went on. Was able to get Venz to expose his back. Was able to finish the fall as well, uh, four minutes in. Uh, so Aaron Brooks wins in the semifinals by pin. Goes to face Cam Caffey in the um, in the finals. Uh, Caffey got by Abus Hod of Iowa in the semifinals. Uh, seems like every time Caffey and Assad go against each other, Caffey just puts on an amazing show of takedown defense where it looks like Assad's going to score the tying takedown late and somehow Caffey is able to avoid giving it up. Uh, there were some moments in the Brooks versus Caffey match where we kind of saw that same level of takedown defense, but Brooks was able to eventually get a late takedown on Caffey uh, in the third period, and that was enough for him to get the win. Uh, so Aaron Brooks wins at 184. At 197, Colin Moore, who's been undefeated all year, continued that, uh, was pretty dominant throughout this bracket. Uh, had a somewhat close match with Eric Schultz in the finals. Um, but still was able to win by a score of 4-1. It's not as though it looked like Schultz was ever close to winning there. Um, we also had uh, Shakur Rashid put on a fantastic performance in the quarterfinals. He was able to get a late takedown on Jacob Warner to win there. Uh, Warner from Iowa. Uh, did have a close loss to Eric Schultz. Went in the back draw. Got in the third place match with Warner. Uh, Warner was up 4-1 to one in that for the first period. But then Schultz, or, but then uh, Rashid uh, decided to medical forfeit from there. So it's not clear what exactly happened to him there. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the seeding works. He did get the win over Warner, but Warner beat him at the duel, and then he also got that win in the back draw. So you figure that Warner's still going to be ahead of Rashid, but with him finishing fourth in the Big Tens, it's definitely going to do him a lot of favors in terms of where he's going to be seeded in the national tournament, so it'll be interesting to see how that works out. And then heavyweight, we got a match between two undefeated guys, number one and number two in the nation with Mason Paris and Gable Stevenson. Um, Stevenson, for the most part, was dominant in this match. There was a, a moment late in the first period uh, where Paris sort of had like a cradle that he, he didn't have his hands locked, but he was able to turn him over and put him on his back. But that was like right after time ran out. Uh, so you'd have to wonder how he had a little bit more time. Would would Gable have wrestled through that position, maybe given up nothing there? Um, or would Mason be able to put him on his back there and either gotten a pin or gotten enough near fall points for him to win that match? It's hard to tell, but either way, Gable was able to do enough there, was pretty good defensively and able to turn his defense into offense and was able to win this match 8-6 to six over Mason Paris. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see... Um, with all the other conference tournaments finishing up, where they go from here, and um, how the rankings work out. But that was definitely a great fight, or not not fight, great um, great wrestling match that we got there between number one and number two at heavyweight. Uh, a couple more things to talk about. Edson Barboza put up a tweet asking for his release from the UFC. He's been in the UFC for quite a while. Uh, there's talk about him moving down to 145. It seems like lightweight just isn't going to work out for him in terms of getting a title fight. He's had some opportunities against some of the best guys there, but hasn't been able to, to get the wins when he's needed them. Definitely a very exciting fighter. Uh, a guy most people want to tune in and watch whenever he's he's there, but it, it seems like for whatever reason he's upset with the UFC. I don't know if he felt like he was not being given the opportunities that he felt like he deserved at featherweight uh, or, or what the issue is with him. I don't know if it's like a title issue. Uh, maybe he feels like, look, if I'm not going to win a title at this point, I'm just here to put on exciting fights. I'd rather do it against guys who are a little bit less dangerous than who I'm fighting in the UFC. So maybe that's what he's thinking. I don't know what his thought process is, but he did put up a tweet saying that he wants to move on from the UFC. It'll be interesting to see if the UFC just releases him or what they do from there. Um, but it, it definitely wasn't something that I expected to see, so felt like it was worth mentioning. Last thing to talk about is going to be some new fights that were announced. Uh, so we got Ty Tuivasa returning against uh, Yargis Danho. Um, Tuivasa, if he loses this fight, might be out of the UFC, even though he's a, a pretty well-liked personality. Uh, we got Curtis Blades versus Alex Volkov. So uh, as I figured, though Curtis Blades probably, uh, under different circumstances, might have done enough to earn himself a title fight, just given the timing of the division and seeing where Nganu is at. Uh, you had to figure that if Rosenstrike wins, he's probably in the next title fight. If Ngannou wins, he's probably in the next title fight. Uh, we still don't even have the current title fight book, so Blades does need, need to stay active, and a, a win over Volkov would definitely help him out there. Uh, so this fight definitely makes sense for that. 
we've got Magomed Ankalaev versus Ian Kutalaba. That fight just happened last week. Uh, had the really bad stoppage. They're going to run it right back at UFC 249, and that'll be on the main card. Uh, we've got Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker. Uh, so Hooker is getting another top-ranked lightweight. Poirier hasn't been booked, hadn't been booked at least since his loss uh, in September to Khabib Nurmagomedov. So finally he's got a fight that he's got ahead of him. Uh, as far as how this fight will go, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, you'd figure for the most part it's going to be on the feet. Poirier's a um, really difficult striker to deal with. Um, very good boxing, very good, very good timing, plenty of power as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Hooker's able to handle that. Um, but if he's able to get Poirier to shoot on him, maybe he's able to land one of those big knees. Um, we've got Peter Young versus Marlon Marais, which is a fantastic fight at Bantamweight. Unfortunately, the, the title fight right now between Cejudo and Aldo is what was booked. So you, you've got two guys. You've got a guy who just came off a win over Jose Aldo, even if some people don't agree with the d- decision. And Marlon Marais, you got Peter Yan, who really should be the, if not Aljamain Sterling, it should be Peter Yan right now who's fighting for a title. Um, but those two will fight each other instead. For Aljamain Sterling, it kind of sucks because now the current title fight is already booked with Aldo and Cejudo. you got what likely is going to be a number one contender fight here with Marais versus... Um, versus Peter Yan, so where do they go from there for Al- for Aljamain Sterling? I think he's going to have to take another fight, but even if he wins his next fight and even if it's booked relatively soon, it doesn't seem like he's going to be next in line for a title fight. I don't know, even if he fights Corey Sandhagen and beats Corey Sandhagen, I don't know if that's going to be enough to, to put him ahead of the winner of the Jan Marais fight, so looks like out of all the people here, um, Aljamain Sterling definitely drew the short end of the stick at, at Bantamweight. And then the last fight to mention is Ryan Hall versus Ricardo Lamas. So Hall has been looking for a, a ranked guy at featherweight for quite a while. Uh, I don't remember if Lamas is still ranked right now or not, uh, but definitely has a has a big name. Has fought for the title before at featherweight, and it's going to be most likely the toughest test of Ryan Hall's career. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, Lamas isn't exactly an easy guy to take down. Um, I believe he's a black belt on the ground as well. Uh, but with that being said, it's not as though Ryan Hall can't tap black belts, especially if he gets into his positions. Uh, if he's able to either get an inside or an outside reap, um, get to 50-50 or get get to like that outside cross Ashi type of position, uh, he's definitely dangerous from there. So it'll be interesting to see how this fight goes, but we've been wanting to see Ryan Hall for quite a while. We've been wanting to see him against a, a top-ranked guy, a, a guy who's built a name in the featherweight division, and as long as no one gets injured here, we're, we're finally going to get that. So that should be pretty exciting. So that covers it for this week's, uh, uh, this week's episode of the MMA Rundown. Um, obviously, I'll be coming back next week with uh, the UFC Brasilia card, recapping that. Um, and I think the Tyron Woodley versus Leon Edwards fight is going to be the week after that, so we'll be, we'll be previewing that as well. So I'm sure plenty of stuff will happen in the meantime. Uh, there's probably going to be some, some more fallout from the UFC 248 event that will be worth reporting on as well. So look forward to talking to you guys then. Uh, as I like to mention before, though, if you're looking to get this um, podcast on immediately right after it's, it's put up, subscribing is the best way to do it. Uh, different times of day. Usually it is going to come out on Sunday. Sometimes it's a little bit later than that, but um, best way to just automatically have it downloaded into your um, into your podcast app is, is to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel or the BitChute channel, uh, and then that way it should probably pop up in your feed as well once it finally comes up. 